Amen. And uh, can you hear me? Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. We, uh, man, we braved that storm yesterday. That, that was something. Uh, I don't know whether you got a chance. Maybe some of, I heard some were driving in it. Uh, others were kind of nestled in your homes, kind of looking through the window out at it. We, we were standing on our front porch and uh, happened to see a, a pretty amazing sight. Just this, we, we wonder if it was like a little mini twister, although maybe that's how everyone felt, but just shingles, sections of shingles flying everywhere over our home and, and then the big tree in front of our house, it like half it ripped off and the branches started swirling, one of them hit our car. And, and just, it, it was just crazy seeing the power of that wind yesterday. Uh, a reminder to me of uh, the power of our God uh, who, who controls the wind and the waves. And um, truly humbling. Um, we continue to pray for those families, especially as Paul prayed, who were affected in, in a very drastic way through loss of life and, and severe damage and injury. So pray for them. But... Um, Wow, what a, what a day yesterday was. It felt like four days in one, didn't it? Um, it was sunny, and it was crazy, and then it was sunny, and then it was dark. And then, Anyway, here we are. It is, uh, it is a special day today because this, as Pastor Paul mentioned in the prayer, is our dear brother Max Boyle's last Sunday with us here. And so we want to take some time following the service in our fellowship time to really come around Max and, and just... Uh, celebrate with him. I know it's a tough move. I know we're going to miss him, and I trust he's going to miss us, but uh, he'll be moving out east, as Paul said, to be with his, his family. So we just want to wish him well and have a special time of fellowship in our gymnasium following the service today. Also, next Sunday, uh, it's a special day because we have a very important missions update that we're going to hear following the service. It's specifically a Middle East missions update with Sarah. And so we are very excited about that. Please mark that on your calendars. We want to be here. Uh, it'll be a, a wonderful time, an important time. It's been a long time so, and since we've uh, had this sort of an update. So I just would encourage you to mark that down on your calendars for next Sunday following our service. All right. Um, we read and sang from Psalm 84 this morning. Uh, how lovely is your dwelling place? Sorry, I got to take a drink here. How lovely <clears throat> is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty? Um, here is how that, that verse reads in the, the New Living Translation. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies? I long, yes. I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. I want to ask you something. Do those verses describe you and your typical worship experience? Does your soul long yearn so much that you almost faint from the anticipation of, of entering into our sanctuary here on, on a Sunday morning to, to worship the Lord together with His people. 
Do you shout for joy when, when you approach the corner of River Road and Lorraine and you see the church building come into view? That's what I heard this morning, wasn't, wasn't it? It wasn't thunder. It was the shouts of joy that you, that you were proclaiming as you drove up here, wasn't it? Do you uh, run into the parking lot? And then from the parking lot, run as fast as you can up to the doors? Not to avoid being late but because you just can't wait, you can't contain the joy of the Lord from flowing out of you and being able to come together and praise Him together with His people here. It's crazy on a Sunday morning. We have to, we have to slow people down in the parking lot, don't we? Or do we? Or should we? Um, I don't know about you, but um, I find these verses very convicting. Hmm. Better is one day, we sang. Which, I don't know about you, but I probably, through most of my life, when I sang that song, which I love, when we sang it together, I'm, I'm picturing heaven. Better is one day there, in the Lord's presence, face to face with Him than thousands elsewhere, right? Nothing wrong with that. That's the truth. However, that is not the context of Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is it's a, a description of a pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem into the temple of the Lord there where God's presence dwelt on earth. It's, it's the anticipation of coming together with God's people to worship the Lord in his presence there in the temple. Um. And look at the yearning, look at the longing, look at the excitement and the anticipation that is expressed here. He's almost panting with excitement. My soul longs. And even it's almost going to faint because I'm going to worship the Lord. Wow. <laughs> Hebrews 4.12 uh, says that the word of God is, is living and active. And it goes on to say that, that one of the activities of the Word of God is, is to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And, and that, that's what these verses do for me. <laughs> because I realize just how far short I fall in my rejoicing, in, in my worship, in my anticipation to come together and worship the Lord together with His people and individually. We know that this is just one portion of worship, isn't it, what we do here? We have 168 hours in a week, or so they tell me. We spend maybe an hour, an hour and a half, because I preach long. Uh, that's decimal 6% of our week, of our week of worship, because that's what we're called to do in everything, right? That's what we read. Uh, hold on, I'm going to come back to that. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's the wrong passage there. That is not, that is not right, sorry. That, that, that what you're looking at there is actually Colossians, and, uh, and I apologize for the, the reference there. But here's, here's where I want to go. I want to go back to that verse I just showed you. This is the, the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, and what Paul says here is striking. 
I've gone by this before without really realizing the significance of it. We know in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul goes on to, to talk about rejoicing in the Lord always, the importance of that. And he repeats it. Again, I say rejoice. But at the beginning of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is what? A safeguard for you. Paul warns the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord because it is a safeguard for them. Because as we've been discussing these last couple weeks, losing your joy as a follower of Christ is a dangerous thing. We are continuing in our series on the joy of the Lord, and today we're focusing on the joy of the Lord in worship, which is the very reason we're here, right? And by here, I don't just mean together in this building today, I mean here on planet Earth, we exist for the glory of God. That, that, that is really, that is the purpose of worship. That is the ultimate aim of the Holy Spirit, is to glorify God through Jesus Christ. And if we're filled with the, the Holy Spirit, our lives should be lived as living sacrifices to the Lord, holy and pleasing to Him, filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Again, sorry, it was 1 Corinthians 10.13 is the proper reference here. So if you're seeing this at home, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We see something similar in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Glorifying God through worship is the reason we exist, my friends. And uh, we do it in the strength that comes from the joy of the Lord, as we've seen these last two weeks. And just as a quick recap, here's basically how we summed up the joy of the Lord. He rejoices over us when we are joined to and rejoice in Him through saving faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. He delights over us. He rejoices in us because of His Son and what His Son has done for us. That is the joy of the Lord. So then, it's no coincidence then that the biggest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, is a hymn book. We've been singing from it this morning. In fact, the entire Bible from creation to revelation is really uh, a manual on worship, isn't it? That's what we have from God's glory revealed in creation in Genesis right through to Revelation where we see the saints and the angels in heaven bowing down, worshiping the Lord in His presence. The Bible is all about praising and worshiping God. And uh, since that will be our never-ending activity and the greatest joy we will experience for all eternity, I think it's important we know what it means and make sure that we're doing it right. Because I'm afraid we can be doing it wrong without perhaps even realizing it. Um, so here's the question. What do you mean when you say worship? <laughs> Many churchgoers today, of course, when they hear that word worship... They think of singing, music, specifically the singing we do between 10 and 11 on a Sunday morning. And yet, as I said earlier, as important as our weekly worship service is, it only accounts for just a fraction of our week. Our very lives are to be lived as sacrifices to Him, Romans 12.1. That's our spiritual act of worship. Everything that we do should be an offering of worship to the Lord. And so, when we hear that word worship, why do we tend to think singing? Well, it's not wrong. We read those verses earlier. Joe, had, we read them together. 
Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the, the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. It's important. Music and singing is, is, a, is a wonderful, important way we worship the Lord. But it's only one way. There are at least seven different Hebrew words for praise in the Old Testament. And they describe a variety of different postures and activities. We, we see things like lifting the hands to the Lord in worship, singing to the Lord, as we're talking about here, shouting to the Lord, serving the Lord, praying to the Lord, reciting the law of the Lord, dancing to the Lord, eating, feasting unto the Lord. All of these are, are acts of worship to the Lord, but the most commonly translated word for worship in the Old Testament we see in Psalm 103, verse 1, praise the Lord. Also translated bless, depending on your version. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's where this, that song we sing comes from. And that is the Hebrew word praise, is the Hebrew word barak. We've talked about this before. Barak uh, refers to kneeling. Because the word barak means knee. So barak is to kneel before the Lord. That is the picture here. The Hebrews regarded the knees as a symbol of strength. So then to bend the knee or bow before the Lord was to bend our strength to Him. It was a physical act of submission, humility, honor, and adoration. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that, that all we are and all we have are from the Lord, who deserves the ultimate praise. But here's the shocking thing for us. Um, you can get down on your knees. You can bow down religiously before the Lord along with all those other activities of worship, like singing and dancing and shouting and, and praying. You can do those things, all of them, and still have it mean nothing to the Lord. In Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah, and here's what he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. See, bowing our heads, raising our hands, singing hymns, that means nothing if our hearts aren't right with the Lord, which David knew all about. While it's possible he, he might have literally been on his knees singing the words of Psalm 103, that's not the kind of bowing he's talking about. Because what does he say? He says, praise the Lord or bless or kneel before the Lord. What? Oh, my soul. Soul. Hebrew word there refers to our inner being, our spirit, our heart, our, our soul, our, our emotional interior. You see, David understood that true worship of Yahweh, which, by the way, is the personal covenant name of the Lord God of Israel, right? It's personal. True worship was not just a physical posture or an outer expression or a, or a really nice-sounding song, but something deeply inward and intimate, something deeply personal and emotional. Beyond bowing his knees, it meant bowing his heart and soul is what he's saying, Bend the knee of his heart before the Lord, of his soul. 
which is exactly what we see in Psalm 84 that we were singing about. There we read, with, with my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God, says the psalmist. Because anything less is not true worship. Which is the startling implication of Jesus' teaching in our passage that we're going to look at today. Namely, that, that we can be worshiping wrong because there are two kinds of worship, specifically two kinds of worshipers. There's true worshipers and false worshipers. True worship and false worship. Um, so on that note, please turn with me in your Bibles if you have them. I hope you do. Uh, to the book of John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Um, John chapter 3, Jesus, we, we have that, that late night interaction between he and Nicodemus. Uh, that has happened, and, and so now we come to chapter 4. And uh, as you're turning there, I've, I've also got it up here on the screen. Beginning at verse 1, <coughs> here's what we read. <clears throat> the Pharisees <clears throat> heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea, which, for the record, was in the south, and went back once more to Galilee, which was in the north. Verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Interesting point. This literally is translated, he sat down on the well, okay? Um, it was about the sixth hour, or noon. Now, pause there. Just a quick background about Samaria, and specifically the Samaritans. They were descendants from the remnant of the Jews left behind from the northern kingdom following the exile of Jewish nobles in 722 BC. And what happened was that remnant intermingled and married with foreigners, adopting their ancient religious practices. Now, though the Samaritans held to their own version of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. And they even built a rival temple of worship to the one in Jerusalem on their Mount Gerizim. And so, the, the hatred and animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews went way, way back, centuries old. You see, the Jews thought the Samaritans were, were vile, ceremonially unclean, racially impure, religious heretics, bitter enemies, and therefore they were to be avoided, okay? And yet we read here, what do we read? It says Jesus had to go through Samaria, which is really interesting. See, most Jews would avoid Samaria like the plague. They'd choose any other way to get to Galilee, even if it meant taking a really long detour just to avoid the Samaritans. But here we read that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Jesus doesn't hesitate to walk right into the heart of enemy territory, as it were, and to sit down on Jacob's well. 
Here's what we read at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Okay. So it's hard, I think, for us to appreciate the shock value of what Jesus does here. First, the boldness of a Jew just being there in the middle of the day, sitting on Jacob's well, that that was one thing. But now Jesus speaks, and not just to a Samaritan, but to a Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink. See, a Jewish man would go out of his way to avoid contact with any Samaritan, especially a woman. He wouldn't even acknowledge her, let alone speak to her. So when Jesus turns to this woman and asks her for a drink, I'm, I'm guessing that would have shocked the daylights out of her. Like she probably froze. What do I do? Do I turn and run away? Or dare I respond to this man? Which, of course, she does. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. See, we know who Jesus is. We know that that he not only has the living water, but that he is the living water. But of course, the woman has no idea what Jesus means. She thinks he's talking about water from the well, and so she says in verse 11, Sir, you've nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wow, words of life from the author of life to this woman who just has no idea. Once again, she's, she's not on Jesus' wavelength. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. See, she's curious, isn't she? she she's kind of starting to go there, but she's not getting it. She's still trying to quench the thirst in her mouth. But Jesus is aiming to heal the brokenness in her soul, in her heart. And that's where Jesus aims next, knowing her heart, knowing her hurt, knowing her sin. Jesus tells her, go call your husband and come back. And she's like, I have no husband. And then Jesus cuts straight to her heart. He says, verse 18, uh, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. 
See, as if the act of the conversation itself wasn't already shocking enough, the facts of the conversation that Jesus brings up here would have probably made her heart sink. Her, her knees maybe tremble. The blood drained from her face. Somehow, some way, she's been caught red-handed. This man knows exactly who she is and what she's done. He knows that, that she's an adulteress, that she's been married five times, and that she's currently living with her boyfriend. So how is this possible? No doubt she starts to panic, right? Because that's what we do when we've been found out. When, when our sin is exposed, we, we try to hide, don't we? And she hides by throwing up a smoke screen. Let's try to change the subject here, okay? Uh, and you know what? If you can change it to an equally controversial subject, that's even better. And so that's what she does. Uh, she says, uh, uh, sir... Uh, I can see that, uh, that you're a prophet. Uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So what's your take on that? Hopefully, she's thinking, hopefully that's taken Jesus off the scent, thrown him off course. But, uh, but it hasn't. Um. You can't throw Jesus for a loop. <laughs> See, she's walked even further into where he's going. Because that's what Jesus is going to teach her. He's going to show her and give her the heart of true worship. And at the heart of the matter of worship is the matter of the heart in worship. She brings up this question of where people ought to worship God to try to throw Jesus off. But Jesus replies by pointing out that the question of where, secondary. So Jesus declares to her, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, the point Jesus is making that is, is it's possible to worship God in vain both places. There on Mount Gerizim, and in Jerusalem. Because it's not about where we worship. It's about how we worship and whom we worship. So Jesus continues. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. I mentioned earlier that with the exception of, of their take on the first five books of the Bible, Samaritans rejected the entire Old Testament which meant their theology was flawed because they didn't understand God or who He was. They didn't have or believe His Word. Consequently, they didn't know the truth. They didn't know the truth ideologically or personally. And uh, if you don't know the Lord you claim to worship, your worship is worthless. It's in vain. It doesn't matter. See, the externals... Let's call them that, uh, like where a person worships or, or what they do in worship, their, their physical posture that they take, right? That be it bowing or raising their hands or singing or dancing. None of that matters if you don't personally know and love who it is you're worshiping. In fact, those things are all wrong if your heart hasn't been made right with God. And so Jesus continues, verse 23, he says, yet a time is coming. And has now come when true worshipers will worship who? The Father 
in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Okay. What's really neat is what Jesus does here is he, he actually takes what she has said. She brought up the idea of fathers, if you've noticed reading in this passage. Um, she referred to our father Jacob earlier in verse 12. And then in verse 20, she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And so Jesus goes with her. Okay, let's talk about fathers. But then he switches from earthly fathers to our heavenly father who alone is to be worshiped, which Jesus emphasizes three times to this woman. He states that true worshipers will worship the father, God, God who is spirit, as we see there in verse 24. Really, really important word. It's the Greek word pneuma, which, which is where we get uh, that idea of spirit or wind, breath, is the meaning of this word. This is God's essential nature. Jesus said a spirit does not have flesh and bones in Luke 24. God is invisible. He is spirit. As we read in Colossians 1.15, he is the invisible God. We read in Psalm 104, he dwells in unapproachable light. No eye has seen him. No one can see him. See, if God hadn't revealed himself in Scripture through special revelation that we talked about last week, and ultimately through Jesus Christ, his one and only Son, he would be completely incomprehensible and unapproachable for us. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, Jesus, not just to show the way to himself, but to be the way to himself. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. No one comes to who? The Father, the Father, except through me. You can't be a true worshiper if God is not your Father. That is, if you haven't entered into a right, saving relationship with Him through faith in His only Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin in full and rose from the dead three days later to give us eternal life. A relationship with God the Father through saving faith in Himself, the Messiah, is what Jesus came to offer this woman. And by the way, He confirms that He's the Messiah, doesn't He? Look how the end of this passage reads. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. My friends, Jesus had to go through Samaria, not just to save a Samaritan sinner, but to teach her and us what it means to be a true worshiper of God the Father, who is spirit. And because he's spirit, that means that his true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth, which Jesus repeats twice so that we don't miss it, in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Okay. Let's talk about this for just a minute. Uh, Let's start with truth, okay? It's the Greek word aletheia, which means not just spoken truth, but moral, divine truth revealed to man. That's what that word means. True worship, my friends, must be consistent with the truth God has revealed about himself in his word, the Bible, period. 
To worship God in truth means that we worship him for all he is in the glory of his attributes that he has revealed to us here in Scripture. It means we, we worship him because he's holy, because he is almighty, because he alone is worthy. We worship him for his love, but also for his justice and his righteousness. We worship him for his sovereignty and for his grace. We worship him when he gives, as we read in Job, when he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We worship him for all his ways, which are recorded for us perfectly right here, my friends, in God's word. And so as we discussed last week, God's word, the Bible, is our only and ultimate guide for knowing, loving, rejoicing in, and worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Truth. Because this is the truth. It should be the centerpiece of our worship, my friends. The truth of God's written and living word that is Jesus Christ. So true worshipers will worship in truth, but also... They will worship in spirit. Okay. This one's interesting. Spirit. What does this mean? There's a, there's a, a long debate. Uh, commentators are split on this. Does spirit refer to God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, or to our spirit? Um, and I would say the answer to that is yes. Um, in that you can't have one without the other. Uh, I really like John Piper's explanation of this. I think he offers the, the most helpful picture and explanation that I've ever read on this. And here's what he says. I'm just going to quote him here. He says this, The fuel of worship is the truth of God. The furnace of worship is the spirit of man. And the heat of worship is the vital affections of reverence, contrition, trust, gratitude, and especially joy. But there is something missing from this picture. There's a furnace, fuel, and heat, but no fire. The fuel of truth in the furnace of our spirit does not automatically produce the heat of worship. There must be ignition and fire. This is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, some interpreters take this to refer to the Holy Spirit. I have taken it to mean our spirit. But maybe these two interpretations are not far apart in Jesus' mind. In John 3, 6, Jesus connects God's spirit and our spirit in a, a remarkable way. He says, that which is, born of, which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, until the Holy Spirit awakens, quickens our spirit with the flame of life, our spirit is so dead and unresponsive that it doesn't even qualify as spirit. Only that which is born of the Spirit of God is spirit. So when Jesus says that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit, he must mean that true worship comes only from spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the Holy Spirit of God. The fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God as revealed in his word, the fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed, reborn spirit. And the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship, pushing its way out in confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bent knees, bowed hearts, lifted hands, and obedient lives. End quote. Thank you for bearing with another long quote. 
Worship in spirit flows out of worship in truth, my friends, because you cannot worship in spirit unless you know and have believed in the word of truth that is Jesus Christ and have been born again of the Holy Spirit. Feeding your mind, that is meditating on the truth of God's word, which we talked about last week, that's what moves our spirit to praise, exalt, honor, love, rejoice in the Lord, which brings us right back to where we started. Rejoicing in the Lord in spirit and truth is a safeguard, my friends, a safeguard for us, a warning, not just to keep us from temptation, but I would suggest to keep us from feeble, faulty, or God forbid, false worship. The joy of the Lord in the life of a Christian is not only our strength, it's the fruit of true worship in spirit and truth. Rejoicing with the joy of the Lord is the proof that our spirit has indeed been made alive through the truth of God's word, faith in it, by the power of the Holy Spirit who applies it to our hearts and who works in us, doing what we can't do on our own, producing his fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law, because these things are of God. These things are the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian who is submitted to Him, who is keeping in step with Him, who is walking in the light of His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so then, true worship, I would say, worship in spirit and truth should be full of the joy of the Lord. And if it's not, I, I think there's something wrong with it. To worship in spirit without truth is false worship. It's empty emotional frenzy. It might be impassioned, but it's truthless. To worship in truth without the spirit is false worship. It's been called dead orthodoxy. It might be doctrinally correct, but it's lifeless. But true worshipers are those who are deeply emotional and deeply biblical, my friends. Heartfelt affections for God rooted in the truth of his word are what Piper calls the bone and marrow of biblical worship. And I think he's right on. Let me ask you a question. What is the context of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Where does that happen in our lives? Where, where do we most see the fruit of the Spirit being, being produced? Well, I'm going to answer the question for you. It should be everywhere. It should be in every area of our lives because our lives are supposed to be offerings of worship to the Lord. 24-7, we should see that being born. So let, let me put it this way. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is born in the orchard of our worship, my friends. And I'm not just talking about this, as wonderful as this is. I'm talking about all 168 hours of our week in which we are to live as fragrant offerings to the Lord, holy and pleasing in His sight. So, if we're not doing that, we need to repent. Be it of joylessness, like we talked about three weeks ago, that the cold state of our hearts, or the wrong state of our minds, if we've neglected the truth of God's Word. We must come back and submit to it, feed on it, and refuel, and so be refilled with the Holy Spirit, 
submitting our spirit to him so that our lives would bear his fruit as we offer ourselves to him every day, every day in joyful worship with the strength of the joy of the Lord. Um, I just want to close with these words. I've taken the lyrics of this Reuben Morgan song we all know. We, we sing, this is my desire to, to honor you. And, and I've just tried to adapt them a little bit to, to fit this. And I pray that this would be a prayer we could together say. Um, I'm just going to read through it once and then let's, if you choose, please pray it with me. May, may this be my desire to honor you. Lord, I, I bow my soul humbly to you. With all my inmost being, I give you praise. In spirit and in truth, I worship you. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, your joy is my strength. Be glorified in me. If you are willing, let's just pray this prayer together. May this be my desire to honor you. Lord, I bow my soul humbly to you. With all my inmost being, I give you praise. In spirit and in truth, I worship you. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, your joy is my strength. Be glorified in me. In Jesus' name, amen. As uh, we respond to the words that we have heard this morning, I would ask if you're able to stand as we sing this closing song, as we, uh, as we long to come back to the heart of worship. Oh, 
again to join us for a time of fellowship in the gymnasium. Uh, please try to speak to Max uh, before you have to go today, uh, just to wish him well and assure him of our prayers and our love as he goes. Uh, but now receive the Lord's blessing, Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.